This is a very high-skill job to put the headphone on, as you can see. If you ever have the idea that we're all exactly the same, you should follow somebody else who's used the (laughs) headphone. How is it with you? First full day. (laughs) Let's do the thumbs. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's normal. (laughs) Somebody was uh, speaking a little bit earlier when Sharon is was in here about uh, how somebody at home was saying, oh, that's so great, you're going to go there and it's going to be relaxing, it'll be so... That's what you need, quiet and peace and tranquility and everything. Yeah. (laughs) That can be part of it. (laughs) And then there's the other stuff, right? The, The slog, the learning, the sloth and torpor and the all the rest of it, and I want my espresso, and where's my remote, and all of that stuff. So you're a little bit in the transition detox stage there, right? A lot of the things that you have you have at home are part of your daily routine that, that uh, you know, you use to provide some level of um, uh, comfort, uh, might not be here in the same kind of way. So, there are other things here though. And you'll see as you go along, you'll connect with them more and more. And that'll be part of the resources that hope hold you. This is from something from uh, Brad Warner's website. He's a Zen teacher. So, he says, A few weeks ago, Neil deGrasse Tyson, astrophysicist, author, science communicator, and director of the Hayden Planetarium, tweeted, The universe is blind to our sorrows and indifferent to our pains. Have a nice day. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, comedian and Canadian Norm MacDonald replied, Neil, there's a flaw in your little aphorism that seems quite telling. Since you and I are part of the universe, when we, then we would also be indifferent and uncaring. Perhaps you forgot, Neil, that we are not superior to the universe, but merely a fraction of it. Nice day indeed. Hmm. So that's an interesting thing, isn't it? I mean, I, I don't think we could really say that, like, you know, Jupiter cares that we're sleepy in the afternoon in our meditation or anything. So there's some truth to uh, Neil's statement if you're looking at inanimate objects. But it's an interesting thing about reality. There seems to be... Hmm some part of even conditioned reality that um, seems to support us and buoy us up and move us along in a direction we wish to go once we figure out the code. 
once we figure out the way. You know, the historical Buddha, according to him, was not the only Buddha. He was not the first Buddha. And in fact, the the understanding is that uh, a Buddha arises uh, at intermittent long intervals in uh, world system history and then offers or re-offers the teachings which have been lost from the previous Buddha over the passage of time. But this is a very interesting way to view things because what it suggests is there's something lawful about the arising of a Buddha from time to time. That there's something built into the universe, some kind of uh, current or set of conditions that causes or supports the arising of an awakened one from time to time. But it's not something that happens without being caused by an individual being's own effort. So if you understand what's said about Buddhas is usually the understanding or the way it's talked about is that this particular being at some point in their their life makes a, an aspiration or a commitment to seek full awakening for the benefit of all beings. This is the bodhisattva vow. And then that person says, okay, no matter what it takes, how long it takes, what I need to go through, what's involved with it, I'm going to, to practice and practice and practice and develop my, uh, the paramis, the perfections of heart, until I get to the point where this wisdom, this uh, wisdom, liberating wisdom, understanding arises again in the world, in my own heart-mind. And then I'll be the being that carries that, offers that to others. And we ourselves, of course, are the beneficiaries of this. It is a wild thing to think, isn't it, that somebody had a path of practice and had uh, an opening 2,600 years ago and now you're sitting here in Barrie, Massachusetts <laughs> talking about uh, what he figured out. So... Uh, my Dharma friend, Bonnie Duran, is a, a teacher, Dharma teacher, as well as another kind of teacher. So Bonnie has Native American heritage, and she often talks about Dharma as medicine, the teachings of the Buddha as medicine. And that's an interesting image for it, because you, you really see in that description that um, medicine is a, a resource that's external, but in order for it to work, it has to become internal. Right? There has to be some uh, ingestion, digestion, and assimilation. 
And the Buddha is very clear that his practice path uh, requires us to to set intention and to make make effort because in certain kinds of ways uh, we're required to go upstream from what our organic inclinations might be. And that can be really hard because we have to go against the the current of our uh, habituated ways of being sometimes. And and some of our habits of behavior, of course, have biological roots to them too. You know, we're this, these squishy kind of vulnerable little beings, you know, we don't have like big claws or, you know, huge fangs and, you know, we can't run up trees when, you know, something is chasing us and we, you know, can't outrun um, many things. So in a certain kind of way, we're hyper-vigilant and easily scared. And when we get scared, um, it's hard to find our higher functioning sometimes, hard to find our higher values and to act from those. So the Buddha's understanding is there are ways that we can actually learn to relate to reality just as it presents to itself to us in real time. That we can learn ways to relate to what we experience from moment to moment that is onward leading, that can lead to the unbinding of the confusion that we have that leads us into enmeshment with suffering. So he would say, any human being has part of the package to be able to do that because we have what's arising at what's called the, the six sense doors, meaning what, what we see, hear, taste, touch, smell, and uh, a mind that is conscious of those things and uh, a mind that is its own sense in a certain kind of way, the heart mind that includes things like thoughts, emotions, intentions, memories, um, all of that. And there's something about finding wise relationship to what's happening in real time that's really the key to the unbinding. Now, we don't control moment to moment what arises in the mind, right? No. (laughs) Now, some of you may not be quite so sure of that because you know there's like, you know, sometimes some control, right? Like, you know... Um, Sharon was saying to somebody uh, this afternoon, well, you know, sometimes you might want to, like, you know, instead of, well, she said it about herself, she said, you know, something along the lines of, well, why would you want to keep reviewing some catastrophe that might happen? Why don't you, you know, kind of like find another channel to (laughs) turn the mind and to advert the mind? So she was pointing to the fact that, you know, there can be some freedom in the mind, uh, well, you know, especially if you're somebody like her who's, you know, probably meditated for 45 years or something. <laughs> There's a little bit more developed capacity to turn that selectomatic to, a, you know, a more useful channel. Uh, 
But for most of us, a lot of the times, it, it's harder than that. And yet, um, there are periods of freedom and ways that we can choose to use our attention that can lead us out of the confusion. And the Buddha's path tells us about that in very explicit ways. So I'm going to tell you some things about the the meta of meta, the M-E-T-A of M-E-T-T-A. So like the big picture, the big picture of it all. And we'll take a look at how meta fits into um, this idea of the mind learning how to free itself through uh, making an effort to deploy attention in particular ways. So, if you take a look at the structure of the Buddha's teachings, you've got the first part of it, kind of the problem statement, is the Four Noble Truths. It's called the Four Noble Truths. And I'm not going to get into that uh, too much tonight, because that's that's worth a talk or two or three or four in and of itself. But I'm going to talk about um, the Eightfold Path, which comes out of the Buddha's uh, teachings of the Four Noble Truths. So you could say that the Four Noble Truths is the, the problem statement for us as human beings, and then the Eightfold Path is a set of blueprints that we can follow to undo suffering, to undo the suffering in our heart minds that is caused by our own confusion, is caused by the fact that we're born into the world without a clue about what's actually going on. I have a a young uh, grandniece and nephew now, the, the Two of them are born close together and they're both still really young. One just turned one. The other one is is like about two now. And um, do you ever see a young child like that and they're going? (laughs) You know? It's like, what is it? <laughs> what is it? How does it? How does it work? Okay, of course, I can't frame the thought, right? It's mostly trial and error. Uh, you know, some impulse leads to some motor thing, and then you know something, and then they, they I, uh, subconscious understanding start to get linked together, and then you know, at some point, you know, it's like. That becomes, and then it becomes, and then it becomes, right? But all these small, these small learnings together. But um, we don't really get the big picture delivered very often, do we? So the Eightfold, Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path is uh, the big picture and the blueprints to employ. So if you look at the first step of the Eightfold Path, there's something in there called mundane wise view. So right at the beginning, the Buddha says, 
you know what, there's something really important that you should understand. And that is that there are certain attitudes of mind and actions that come from those attitudes that are skillful and there's some that are unskillful. And the ones that are unskillful are states that are born from greed, aversion, and delusion. And if you do those, if you get on that current and you kind of ride it and don't realize that it's problematic, you're going to experience deepening suffering and delusion. On the other hand, there are other attitudes of mind and actions which flow from them which are wholesome. And these are attitudes and actions of mind that are born from uh, generosity, from metta and compassion and from wisdom. And if you get on that train, if you use your attentional uh, and decision-making capacities to uh, nourish and develop those things, you begin the process of experiencing more happiness, more well-being, more clarity of mind, more wisdom, and you begin to be able to get out of the ditch. So that is a very important thing to to understand right at the beginning. The Buddha says, some kind of stuff you don't want to do, and some kind of stuff you definitely want to do. So that's an important thing to understand. So this isn't like um, uh, based so much in moralism, right? It's based on functionality. <laughs> like if you want to, if you want to go here, this is where that road goes. This road goes here. So. We're assuming you want to go towards uh, happiness and well-being and more freedom of mind, less suffering, then that's the way you want to go. So the next step on the Eightfold Path is something called wise intention. Wise intention. And here the Buddha kind of like doubles down on part of what he just uh, was talking about in the first step. And he says... Okay, if you want to understand what's being cultivated or what you need to cultivate attitudinally to go in the direction of your uh, higher good, then you want to look at cultivating renunciation, which is letting go of making uh, pleasure the determinant of everything you do letting go of an addiction to the pursuit of pleasant, and you want to cultivate compassion and metta. So that's a way of saying, if you're looking at what attitudes of mind should be and are developed in the Buddhist practice path, that's what is important. Renunciation, compassion, and metta. So that's in relationship to ourselves, in relationship to others, in relationship to uh, what we experience. And then the next three steps in the Eightfold Path, uh, three, four, and five, are wise speech, wise action, and wise livelihood. 
And those all go to kind of the ethics of daily living. And they're an important piece because the Buddha says, okay, one way you can start this practice of safeguarding your own well-being and that of other people is to practice non-harming. So So don't hurt people with your speech. Don't hurt people with your action. Don't hurt people with your livelihood, including you. (laughs) So refrain from those kinds of actions as an expression of both wisdom but also of compassion. So that's the uh, daily life perspective. Then he goes into the next step, which is six, where he's talking about wise effort. So this is a clarification again. Okay, another. this is another big picture framing that the Buddha makes, and he says, okay, what do we want to do, team? How do we want to do it? <laughs> so he says, there's four great endeavors big picture that we're trying to do with this Buddhist practice. So we want to avoid or prevent unwholesome states that aren't there yet. Remember I said back at step one, he makes this distinction between wholesome and unwholesome. So in four, he's like back to that explicitly again. He says, okay, the the ones that are not going on, you don't want (laughs) to get them going (laughs) The unwholesome ones that aren't there, you don't want to get them going. And if they are there, you want to learn to relate to them in a way that uh, undercuts them or mitigates them or lets go of them. Right? So if, for instance, you you have, say, a state of uh, great uh, anger or something arise, um, you don't want to double down on it. But what you want to do is learn to develop the skill of finding the ground of what's wholesome and developed within you already and bringing that, marshalling that, bringing that to that state, bringing mindfulness to that state, bringing compassion to that state, bringing ethical restraint to that state so that it weakens or that pattern of rage within you over time weakens. And then there's what the other two of these great endeavors have to do with the direct cultivation, the direct development of the skillful ones. So the effort to cultivate wholesome states not yet arisen, and the effort to maintain wholesome states that have already arisen. So meta would be one of these. So here this week we're going to be focusing on cultivating and bringing forward, developing and strengthening this state of meta, this wholesome state of meta. So that's how it falls in the Buddhist teachings. And the remaining two steps of the Eightfold Path, wise mindfulness and wise concentration are basically the meditative tools that we're developing and using here. 
So today we spent the day doing some work with mindfulness to try to get ourselves grounded and present. So we're going to be able to do the the cutover to the, the meta instructions tomorrow and start with that. So meta uh, mindfulness is always present there. Wise mindfulness is, is part of the meta cultivation. And then wise concentration. Well, meta's concentration practice in that it seeks or develops a mind that's unified in this attitude of goodwill towards ourselves or others. And we use a particular um, framework for doing that. And the framework is uh, embedded in the meditation instructions that you're going to get in the morning. So you can see this wholesome, unwholesome distinction goes all the way through the Eightfold Path. And the Eightfold Path is all about cultivating the wisdom of wholesome states and the renunciation of entrapment and the unwholesome. So, you know, the Buddha was really big on understanding causes and conditions. So, nothing really happens randomly. I know it it feels like that sometimes, doesn't it? You know, you have some experience or you hear some story like, you know, somebody who's running down, driving down the road and all of a sudden, you know, I don't know, a woodchuck ran out and... You know, something happened. and On the level, as human beings, we can say, I don't understand why that happened. Why did that happen? You know, sometimes I, we take that in the direction of, um, you know, this was a really good person and then this terrible thing happened to them and it doesn't seem right and it doesn't seem fair. We don't understand all the causation, but, you know, there's often there's something in our heart that says, you know, this is not right. This is not right. This this world is a hellhole of uncontrollability. The Buddha would say, yeah, first noble truth. The first noble truth is there is suffering. There is unreliability of phenomenon. You know, we can't control it even though we want to. We can't control it in the immediate sense. We can influence what happens and how much we suffer and cause others to suffer by how we learn to relate to immediate experience. And we can set a general direction for our lives and for our own development by our own actions and efforts. You know, there's some things about human beings that are interesting. <laughs> you know, when we're good, we're, we can be so good. You know, isn't it amazing? I mean, I'm sure a lot of you followed uh, last year that whole story about the Thai boys who were caught in the cave and how that flooded and, uh, you know, the water was coming up and up and they were going to run out of air. And, I mean, the whole world wound up watching that. 
right? From all all parts of the world, you know, different people were involved in, you know, thinking about what resources might be helpful or what information would be useful or, you know, what skills they had that that might be deployable to it. I mean, didn't it make you feel proud to be a human being? It did. It did me. And and I I, uh, you know, the way the all the villagers around, you know, uh, got together and were making food and supporting the the rescuers who were there trying to do the rescue, and then you know all these. Uh, um, uh, you know, Thai seals and, you know, these these different men from around the world who were, you know, risk takers, let's say that, risk takers, you know, extreme risk takers like cave divers and the dark explorers who, you know, found it fun. Um, it's not my nervous system, but, you know, uh, how they, they put themselves in harm, harm's way and took risks and work together as a group to to get the get the boys out there. I just thought, oh man, now that's good male energy, right? <laughs> it was. Hmm. You know, and sometimes some of the some of the the ways we are in groups and and work in in groups, uh, not so useful, right? <laughs> Our organizational capacity uh, sometimes uh, overcomes our moral development. So this is partly an evolutionary trick, is it not? There's reason to think that some of the same dynamics that are present that cause... Uh, say a family to to bond with a newly born child or uh, you know to create an extended family or create an extended community may create certain challenges to accepting fully accepting people who aren't in the inner circle isn't that an interesting thing I won't go into conversations about borders So that's an interesting thing that about us humans. So you can see um, what we're doing with the cultivation of metta, given that its endpoint is all beings are included, everybody's us, everybody's in the group, the group. There's no boundaries to the group anymore, it's just, it's us. We're, we're starting at the beginning with uh, uh, organic human goodwill and care for those who are close to us, right? Without which human beings can't, can't survive. We're taking that, uh, that wholesome state, and in the terms of the four great endeavors, we're developing and extending it to individuals and groups that are increasingly more distant and therefore less organic to include. So we're taking what's wholesome, what's organic to us, and then we're working with it to strengthen it and and bring it forward.
So how many of you think of yourselves as being uh, a loving, meta-filled person? Put it up, put it up, put it up, name that, claim that. And then you, some of you are like, <laughs> I'm halfway, half filled with meta. <laughs> Is that a, that's on the good days? <laughs> Here You know, the Buddha thinks it's actually a good, uh, a good thing to recognize your wholesome and skillful qualities. So one of the exercises that um, the Buddha uh, would sometimes uh, give to people and... Uh, certainly traditional, some of the traditional uh, monastic teachers would give to people as, as a support to their practices, they would say, uh, I'd like you to go away and spend some time reflecting on your wholesome qualities and wholesome deeds. Now, if you got that instruction from one of us, okay, what I'd like you to do this afternoon, I said, well, go, go to your room or go outside, sit comfortably on a bench, and I want you to take a look at your wholesome qualities and your wholesome deeds. Would you like to do that? Would you? I, I... Yeah. I'd, I'd say it's a little less than uh, enthusiastic. I, I, there's a few outliers uh, I'm hearing. Now that that's an interesting thing. Now, why would that be? Why would it, why wouldn't you want to? If if you felt like, mm, why why would you not want to? Focus on, uh, check yourself, (laughs) figure out what you need to fix, what's wrong. Yeah. It doesn't feel humble. Uh-huh. You recognize that there's certain way in which the view is distorted because you're not perfect and so that means that there's nothing good. <laughs> yeah. You're not really altruistic. You're not Uh-huh. Your motives aren't pure enough to be able to claim altruism. <laughs> yeah. My wife's mother was pregnant. Pride goes before the fall. Did she put a lot of banana peels out there? <laughs> oh, sorry. 
What else? So, so this is an interesting thing because yet often there is a strong negativity bias that we have in relationship to ourselves. So, and I think that there are reasons for that, and you know, some of them are. Um, Cultural, social. Some of them actually come from our, our lack of recognition because our mind isn't turned in that direction. So often there are a lot of wholesome states, but they're so prevalent we kind of overlook them. You know, there's a lot of everyday goodness in human beings. I, I can remember once uh, driving down in an uh, adjacent town here, and I was driving by the town cemetery, and near the gate of the cemetery, there was a a banner up that caught my eye, and it said, Thank you to all the people who helped our son. And I kind of put it together in my own mind, given where it was that somebody had just, you know, passed away and probably been buried, and that the parents of that child were thanking the people in town who had helped in one way or another. I mean, there's there's a lot of that, isn't there? You know, your kid forgets their lunch, you know, and you figure out how to get something down to them. You might be a little annoyed, but you do it. Right? Your gran- you know, your grandmother that you you take shopping, you know. I mean, there's a lot of stuff every day. You know, the, the person at work who's been sick and, you know, you take take some of their work while they're gone, so they're not plowed under when they get back. I mean, we do these kinds of things all the time. So, you know, everyday goodness is so common that it's often unseen. And then somebody else mentioned, you know, we don't we don't see the wholesome states as problematic, and we're you know we're looking for problems. This is a, partially a biological thing, you know to get back to the point about the soft and squishy nature that we have. You know, we're looking for <laughs> for what could could get us. Aren't we? <laughs> it's always interesting when city slickers come out here to the country, you know. <laughs> You're like a ru- rustle in the bush. What's <laughs> that? that a fair? I had uh, a couple... A couple uh, Guys come to, I live in town here. I had a couple of guys come to my house once um, moving some furniture in, and they were from Boston. And, you know, they came up my, my unpaved driveway and they came up to the house and they got out of the, the truck. And, you know, it's wooded where I live, and they're like looking around and they're looking around and, you know, pulling down the ramp. And I can tell something's wrong. And I, so, you know, I greeted them and they said, 
Are there bears around here? <laughs> and I said, yeah. And they're like... I said, but, you know, it's okay. You know, this time of year, you probably won't see any... Well, <laughs> maybe I should have been a little more definitive and, and said, oh, no, they won't be here today. <laughs> because that was the fastest unload <laughs> job you can imagine. It's like, they they were going back to Boston, you know, and for, and, uh, and for me, you know, probably going into a... a big, really busy, hectic city like Boston, you know, that's where I'm looking for the bears, you know. It's like, <laughs> what's going on? Oh. But we're kind of, we're kind of scared like that. So, a lot of the goodness that we have, I think we overlook because they're kind of like not a big deal, you know. It's along the line of, uh, well, anybody would do that. Well, anybody do that. That's no big deal, you know. Hold a door for somebody. That's anybody do that, you know. It's like, you know, help help a a mother unload a a stroller. Well, anybody do that, you know. Move your seat in the airplane so that you know uh, some people can sit together. Well, anybody would do that. Well, well, that means those anybodies are doing good things too or operating with wholesomeness. So then there's the uh, yes but attitude towards uh, wholesome states and decisions and intentions and all the rest of it. It kind of, yeah, you know, we don't, I don't want to be inflated. But really, is acknowledging that you are experiencing uh, or expressing generosity or gratitude or goodwill or compassion or empathetic joy or equanimity or wisdom. Um, That's not really inflation material. I mean, that's not pride, uh, superiority, uh, uh, self-aggrandizement, uh, diluted importance. That's a, that's a different spectrum of things, a spectrum that has unwholesome mixed in with it. So, it's important to recognize. And of course, there's, there's the cultural bias towards our experience and towards ourselves you know social conditioning is a bit a big piece of this and i think it's becoming increasingly so so you know our western culture here hyper competitive hyper individualistic you know there are <coughs> groups within this culture who don't hold it in that kind of way but the culture as a whole. You know, this idea of the self as a closed uh, system, isolated and set off against and graded against all the others. So um, all fixed self-views are uh, delusional, but some are more than others. So now with the rise of social media, it's fantastic, isn't it? I mean, you can compare and criticize yourself 
against things that aren't even real. <laughs> I mean, you know, the, the, all the pictures uh, that are photoshopped, including those of models, you know, not even the models look like the models, I mean, and, and uh, you're not enough because you don't look like that. You know, if, if you were looking at some of the things that the larger cu- culture emphasizes, it has to do with um, values and uh, marketing of things like power and youth and attractiveness and wealth and success and popularity and happiness found in and limited to uh, sense pleasures. Somebody was talking this morning, I think it might have been one of the teacher trainees was was telling a story about how uh, it's been become uh, very popular to to travel internationally to a, a certain uh, place so that you can take uh, some uh, snap uh, chat photos of the aurora borealis and then you can turn that into like a green saver and that that's like the highest thing and that people go there to get that picture to put you know put on their uh, uh, their their public facing um, image that's a long way to travel to make yourself look good (laughs) and you didn't even make the aurora borealis right (laughs) So, so, you know, our own self-view is constructed in this kind of matrix um, with these beliefs and these social preferences being part of what forms our feelings and perceptions about ourselves. So, you know, we can learn this kind of stuff in school, in the family, in communities, in the media. And it makes us very vulnerable. So, this practice of metta is about letting go of criteria for ourselves. I need to be this way in order to be okay. I need to be this way in order to be cared for. I need to be this way in order to respect myself. I need to be this way in order to to deserve care. It's so cruel. But the patterns often are deeply conditioned. So, and it's not that those uh, patterns of mind make us bad people, it just means that we're suffering. Right? Right? that there, there's been some um, uh, distortion in our perceptual field that is creating suffering and has created a, a limitation or a ceiling for us um, because of this false view, false self-view. So now, in the process of being here, we have the opportunity to begin to reverse that by cultivating the wholesome, by cultivating the skillful directly, by applying effort um, to remember to uh, care. 
to allow, to support, to reinforce, to encourage, to find some compassion for ourselves, to find some faith in ourselves and our own goodness and our own potential to continue to develop and evolve in the way that we want to. The most amazing thing about the Buddhist teachings is that he tells us you've got the seed or you have the keys to your own evolutionary direction in your own hands and you can set the direction in which your heart-mind develops. You can choose where you want to go and you by learning how to attend in certain ways in real time, can actually nurture that and have that happen. That's pretty wild. So whatever the starting point is for you in relationship um, to these attitudes of mind towards yourself, you can move in the direction of more kindness, more care, more stability, more compassion, more uh, joy, more equanimity. This is, this is all um, your potential. So it's a question of uh, application. So it's a, an amazing thing to see over periods of time people that I've known through retreat and some of the incredible changes in them in regard to how they hold themselves and the attitudes of heart that they, they have towards themselves. Now, this is not uh, magical thinking or instant change. You know, there's a certain way in which this is an agricultural process, <laughs> you know, more than uh, an industrial process, <laughs> right? We don't have power, uh, you know, power tools here. It's more like hose and seeds and watering cans and organic fertilizer and that. But it works. So... I had a an aunt who lived to be uh, the to the age of ninety four. This is my mother's sister, and um, to me, she was really an exemplar of this quality of metta. Um, and you you could kind of tell just by looking at her. I mean, there there was uh, something about her uh, her expression and. Um, just the what came through her eyes but I can, I can remember the last time I saw her she uh, she was 94 and she was living in assisted living with uh, m- uh, my uncle and I went to see them and you know walked in the door to their apartment and she came up to me she gave me this big hug and she said it's so good to see you kiddo so good to see you, kiddo. 
Yeah, natural, organic, meta. You know, when you get to be late middle age, there aren't that many people that call you kiddo. (laughs) It was like I was the best thing that happened, you know, like... It was interesting, you know, when she when she passed away, um, you know, we were at the funeral home, and you know, a, lo- a lot of pe- a lot of people came, and a, you know, a lot of people came from um, uh, the assisted living uh, place as well, and so her family, you know, were were there to to greet the people who were visiting, and. Um, Almost everybody who came up and spoke to the, the family said, she was my best friend. She was my best friend, you know. And one after another, one after another, best friend. Finally, one of my cousins says to me, she had an awful lot of best friends. <laughs> <laughs> but there, there's a certain kind of way in which uh, cultivating this, this uh, capacity of heart makes us more of a universal kind of person. Somebody that that can connect with with a big range of people, can meet them at that that level. And in that kind of way, you know, be a a friend to others if only for a momentary connection. And and of course the flip side of that is um, you yourself... Um, and then are living in an atmosphere where everybody you meet is your friend. <laughs> and Sharon has talked about that kind of experience. I remember her saying once that one of her favorite things was uh, uh, finding somebody that she would come across routinely in the course of her daily life, say, you know, somebody who worked at the bodega down the block or something, somebody that she would see, you know, on an intermittent but, you know, ongoing basis once in a while and watch how that person uh, moved in her heart mind from being kind of like a neutral person into the, <laughs> the, friend, the friend category. So, you know, that, that's going to be part of uh, your own transition with yourself, you know, moving maybe from somebody who's in your own kind of neutral category or perhaps you're even in your own difficult category <laughs> into a neutral category and then to, into a, a friend category and then into a benefactor category and then into just meta for you. unqualified. So I think that's good for now. May the merit of the practice that we've done here today be a cause and condition of our own awakening and that of all beings everywhere.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.